Hi folks, and welcome back to another episode of Naturally Adventurous. This is Ken Behrens, as always, joined by Charlie Hessa. Hi folks. Well, we're picking up the theme that we started last week, which is uh, sort of Ask Me Anything episode. Uh, last week I interviewed Charlie, and this week Charlie is going to interview me. So I, I have no idea what questions he's going to ask. Um, I'm sure they're going to be pretty hard-hitting. <laughs> Uh, before we get into that, uh, anything new on your side, uh, Charlie? Since we last chatted, I'm uh, I'm packing. Yeah, I'm. Uh, we're, we're heading off on a road trip tomorrow. We've just got the today's actually the last day of term, and I've got a whole big birding itinerary. We've got uh, my son's got uh, over a month, I think, like five weeks of school. Well, wow. it's the end of the school year, so we're and and the air is bad up here, so we're hitting the road and we're just uh, we're just going to go traveling around Thailand. Yeah, hitting all the national parks doing some birding maybe looking for one or two lifers for me which i'm pretty excited about and uh, a lot of lifers for him i think how many lifers do you aim to get for the boy oh for the boy she, she could even it could be like 40 something like that wow or even 50 yeah i mean he hasn't birded the south at all also you're uh, going all the way down to the of, into the yeah. south yeah into Sunderland Islands. We're doing, yeah, we're gonna go and do some uh, some rainforest down there. Go to Krungching and maybe Krabi area and maybe even further south. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Well, with any luck, we'll have some good stories uh, next week coming out of your travels. Oh, yeah. Maybe some uh, some road rage. Yep. You know, who knows what happens <laughs> when you hit the road? <laughs> Anything could happen. Who knows? And how how are you? How's your uh, you you feeling any better than the last week? Um. Slightly better, not worse, which is good. Sort of achieving full recovery from COVID has definitely proven a, uh, a slow, slow affair. Yeah, but yeah, okay. I can't can't complain. So, uh, but still, not uh, not near hundred percent energy. I'm sort of hovering around. Right. No, no strenuous workouts yet. Oof, trying. I'm really trying. <laughs> My body is just crying for exercise. So the fact that I'm even thinking about exercise right. means I'm you know I'm getting better. But then yeah, when, when I do work out, I just yeah. feel like. Ugh. Not great. Yep, I'm sure I'll, I'll get there another week or two. So, if uh, unless we've got anything else, uh, I'll, uh, I'll I'll jump straight in to these uh, to these questions. Sounds um, good. Let's see how we. Yeah, there's. Uh, I've I've tried to keep a sort of chronological order to these, so we're going to start chronological. Uh, when you were a kid. Okay. Yeah. Just going to ask a few questions about the past first, and then uh, and we'll finish off with some uh, questions about the future. Wow! But uh, first of all, uh, one thing that well, everybody knows you're a very good birder, or they should do. Um, but you you were actually uh, ABA Young Birder of the Year, were you? Yeah, that's right. And uh, how old were you when when that was? I guess I was. 17 when i when i won i, I think oh I was, you were 17 yeah i started okay. so i was in the oldest category i was i started it when i was 16 right. and won when i was 17 and yeah for people who don't know it's like a, a year-long thing you you keep field journals you you draw birds sketch birds and make notes and you write several papers about birding topics which are judged by a, a panel yeah it's that's a great thing it really really kick-started my birding and really kind of took my birding to the next level in a way especially drawing birds right. I, I never i wouldn't say i was ever uh -huh. particularly good at it but just kind of forcing myself to do it definitely made me 
much better birder. Right. Um, I, I actually met some of these ABA young birders down in Texas one year. I, I went birding with them. I was supposed to be mentoring them, and they were just amazing, some of these young kids. They were sort of between 14 and 17, and I went with them on a sort of big day, and they were just amazing. They blew my mind. But uh, anyway, my question is, what did, how did you see yourself at that time? You know, did, did this go to your head, or did you, you know, were you little bit kind of cocky about it thinking you know I'm, I'm the sort of bee's knees or you know what how did you see yourself as a birder at that time i do think young people tend towards arrogance in general um <laughs> they often tend to be quite good at things too you know whether you're talking about athletics or, or birding young people are often quite quite sharp but then they're also quite arrogant often out of proportion yeah. to how good they actually are at something my early birding was quite solitary. I wasn't real social, so I didn't have a lot of chances to kind of compare my skills with other people. Right. So that kept me kind of humble in a way early on. I think I definitely developed some arrogance when I started to interact <laughs> with other birders. And then there was a community right. of, you know, it was called Teen Bird Chat, this listserv right. uh, the, of, of younger birders. And, you know, we definitely developed some arrogance uh, on that on that platform and you know i remember doing birding trips in sort of my early 20s and just thinking we were just so much better than other other travelers and we were you know and there was some truth in it like when, when you got like four super keen skilled young birders you just do find more birds than than a lot of other groups of people right. but i don't think and we fully appreciated how much we didn't know and how much people right. like say, you know, if you're in Ecuador, how much someone like Ridgely actually does know that you don't know. <laughs> so, but yeah. you know, some, some of that's natural too. I think you, like you, you have to develop your confidence and you have to kind of be ready to challenge the, the older generation. So there's something, there's something natural about it. As long as you don't stay arrogant like that forever. So yeah, my, my sort of follow on question to that was, how do you see yourself as a birder now? <laughs> what kind of opinion do you have yourself? I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you my opinion of, of, of how you are as a birder after you, after you tell me. <laughs> I would say that in terms of the larger birding community, I have developed a very particular sort of sub skill or set of skills that very few other people pursue. So, you know, I haven't really taken the track of like trying to be one of the best birders in the United States. I, in, in a sense, I'm trying to be one of the best birders in the whole globe, which means you have to kind of compromise the degree of expertise that you have in any one place. And, and a lot of that yeah. is actually just the ability to learn a new place very quickly and to be pretty good there. So you're never going to be as good as the best people there, but you're going to be pretty, pretty good. Uh, and that's kind of the skill that I've gone for over my, you know, the last 15 years. And it's a pretty unusual skill. And then the other thing about that is that it has to be in tandem with the sort of the people skills of guiding. And that's, that's a very different, right. it's like this uh, different combination of skills. And uh, I mean, I guess maybe we compare ourselves to other birding guides a little bit, but I, I don't really tend to do that. And I think honestly, it's very hard to evaluate and even like, because, you know, the numbers that you find on the given tour really don't tell the story. It's it's really more how happy people no. are and how do you even assess that and compare. So, 
maybe that's not a very clear answer, but um, no, it, it it certainly says something. I you actually bring up a good point that that because you know there's there's amazing birders that bird their local patches or their local countries, but what we do as guides having to you know say we go on a recce, we've got to become a world expert on that area, having only been there once. Yep. And and know it as well as anyone else and know everything there is to know about a bird and how to find them and how to show them to people. And and it is actually quite different from just being very, very competent birder on your home patch. You know, it, it is a yeah, sometimes you describe it to people, say, Oh, and I'm going to the you know, say, I'm going I'm guiding in this place. Have you been there? No, but I'm gonna go there for two weeks beforehand. And they're <laughs> like, Well, how can you how can you be an expert then? And I said, Well, you know <laughs> that's what we do. Um and, and we are because you know you, you you need that ability to just like memorize everything there is to know about something you know it's um and it's quite a it is quite a skill um so i've got another slightly so what what do you think makes a good birder i, I know that there's people bird in different ways i mean last on the last episode we talked a little bit about birding by ear and some people are very visual or very sort of into the 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 minutiae of of identifying birds and all the little plumage differences but what what makes a good overall birder would you say it's a lot of different skills that all kind of coincide but they they rarely all coincide in one person so you know different different good birders might have a different mix of skills or, or let's say different levels of skill in different areas. Um, so it's not just like a, a single dimensional thing at all. You know, part of it is it actually a mental thing, especially when it comes to like what you and I do. It's just being able to assimilate huge amounts of information very quickly and then put it into practice quickly. That's, that's a big skill in international birding. I suppose in just raw birding, let's say you're just birding your local patch every day, a lot of it is just, it's a physical thing. It's like, it's quickness, it's having trained your eyes, it's having learned patterns so that, you know, it's almost like chess in terms of like you're seeing patterns so quickly that you're, it doesn't even reach your conscious mind. Your, your subconscious is a sort of interpreting patterns, whether the way birds are distributed in a patch of habitat or or even just the way you perceive the bird itself, you're doing that like on a, a pre-conscious level that is very fast. And the only way you ever get that is through tons of repetition. You know, there's no shortcut to getting that skill. Yeah, it's it's complicated. I'm, I mean, I'd, I would be curious to ask you the same thing of like, yeah, what do you think makes for a good birder? You know, if... I think when we're looking at, I mean, we often compare ourselves to other guides, you know, and, you know, and, and really a lot of the professional guides are really in the upper echelons of birding skills. You know, you've got to be, you've got, you can't be not as good a birder as someone that you're guiding. You know, you have to have that sort of expertise to, to do the job. But um, I think it often comes out in the really difficult birds. Like, I mean, there's some truly difficult birds in the world to see. I mean, some of the things that we've looked for together, you know, these little skulking things, you know, like a dapple throat or something like that. It's like a, it's like a battle of wits. Mm -hmm. You know, you, this bird is incredibly good at eluding, even being seen. And then you're using all the skills in your arsenal 
to be able to see it or photograph it or whatever you want to do so and being able to do that often is a you know represents your skill as a birder so often you'll get you know a bunch of guides and there's only a couple of these guides are able to find this one bird because they all or see it because they've just got that that section of skills so i think re the ability in being able to find and even you know show people some of the most difficult birds in the world i think is a is a sort of um it does say something about your your birding that's a really good point and i'm just thinking like tropical forest birding is a very different thing than say northern european or northeastern united states yeah. birding where you're sort of sitting on a shore watching birds fly by you're sitting on a mud flat watching shorebirds waders where in that case it's kind of like your attention to detail your ability to concentrate yep it's a very different thing when you're like in a jungle and you're soaked in sweat and you're carrying a bunch of gear <laughs> and like you're trying to basically use a bird's call to attract it into a little open place where not only you but a whole group of clients can see it very very different skills it's very different skill yeah yeah i i've always definitely been more interested in in the latter kind of thing than the former yeah the sort of micro yeah. analysis of sort of brown bird just never excited me nearly as much as kind of i don't know i'm really into habitats and like habitat recognition and sort of ecology and then kind of using that to see birds and find birds that that really excites me right. a lot more than sort of feather minutia so another kind of follow-on question to this is do you see yourself as having any so you know you can be a visual birder or a, 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 an auditory birder or good at different types of things you know there's some birders are good at some things other birders are good at others i i, I see you being pretty strong you know across the board you know you you've got a very good ear you've got a very good eye you've got a very good sense of habitat but do, do you do you see yourself as having any weaknesses like having any areas of your birding which you think are maybe not quite as good as other areas i think it's probably that sort of attention to detail when it comes down to those birds where you really have to look very very carefully at minutia of of a bird i it doesn't interest me as much and i haven't put in the mm. time say studying immature shorebirds for just months and years to to have the the yeah. the background of knowledge to be ready to interpret what i'm seeing in the field immediately i've always been much more of like a birder by impression or or like you were saying by call and that sort of thing and so yeah that's definitely uh -huh. a weakness compared to to some of the top birders some of those folks have just spent so much time looking at like dowagers that they you know just immediately can look at <laughs> a dowager and know what it is that's quite impressive it's funny but i mean you know we, we only have one word for it we say oh he's a good birder but it can mean so many different things absolutely like, you know completely different things it's almost a bit misleading really he doesn't really tell you good in what way you know and being a good tour leader or guide is actually quite a different thing there's some overlap i would say you have to be yeah. in sort of the top i don't know 10 20 percent of birders to be a guide but you have to have a lot of other skills too uh, a lot of a lot of younger birders I, don't realize that i actually know some people who are fantastic guides but not particularly good birders you know i think they've obviously reached that level you know 
to be able to do it competently. But, you know, you wouldn't call them, in birding, we always say shit hot birders, you know. You, you wouldn't call them shit hot. But they are good enough, but they're just really good with people. And, you know, they, they, they time management and organization and, and friendliness and people skills. And they're fantastic, but maybe not an amazing birder. But And then you get other people who are like, oh, my God, this guy is the bee's knees. He's just, or this girl. Um, and they're just amazing birders. And they just don't have those same skills to run a tour. So, yeah, being a... Being a great bird doesn't necessarily make you a good tour leader and vice versa. No, I totally agree. And, you know, if if a younger birder is listening to this and they're a really sharp birder and they're keen to become a guide, you know, I would say work on your people skills. And, you know, I would have given myself the same advice in my early 20s because mm. that's actually, in a way, that's harder to get. You're probably... Most sharp birders started birding quite young and by the time they're in their early 20s, they're really sharp but most very few people have the skills to guide a tour in their early 20s they're just not there in terms of their sort of social skills their organizational skills um strategy that sort of thing cool very good okay we're gonna move on a little bit I, and this is actually uh, i'm gonna plagiarize one of your questions from uh from the last episode which was i found one of the most interesting ones and that is this idea of having some sort of inflection point in your life what event or what stage in your life really sort of turned the corner to bring you on the road to where you are because i always thought for myself it was um because you sprung the question on me last time and and i thought it must be some kind of birding experience and in the end it wasn't it was a non-birding experience that sort of led me down this road right I can think of two, and so maybe I'll just cheat and give you two. So one, <laughs> one huge one was when I ended up working for Tropical Birding and just got into the international guiding thing. That was a pretty big inflection point. It actually wasn't something I'd sought whatsoever to that point, and it isn't even something that I envisioned as a sort of career path. And it sort of seduced me. <laughs> and, you know, I moved. I just moved sort of on the drop of a hat to South Africa and uh, so that that was a pretty big inflection point. And the other one is sort of related. You know, I lived in South Africa for a few years, and I was actually on the verge of moving to Taiwan and working with Keith, our uh, friend Keith Barnes, who is based in Taiwan, and be in you know doing Asia tours and really kind of starting a whole new life in the Far East. And at that point, I met my wife in Madagascar. I was guiding. Madagascar trip and met her and the plan drastically changed I ended up moving to Madagascar and <laughs> and I'm still here so you know that's that's if I had to pick one I think that's probably meeting the person that you're going to marry and start a family with is pretty massive inflection point and the fact that she came from another country and being together sort of necessitated moving there made it quite a big turning point yeah so this sort of leads into my next question which is 10 years ago, just before that, that time, before that tour, where would you have thought you would be in 10 years' time? And part B to that question is, if somehow you were told where you, got, where you were actually going to be in 10 years' time, what would you make of that life that you, were, that you would have? Would you, be, would you be happy with that life? Is that something you saw yourself as, as doing 10 years later? I think I envisioned something fairly close to what has actually happened in my life. 
but I wouldn't have known the fine details. You know, I wouldn't have known that right. I'd be living in Madagascar, but I, I certainly would have liked to be living somewhere outside of the United States and, you know, probably married to someone who's not American. I, I just always thought that was likely in my life. Was that part of the game plan? You know, could would you have hoped to have been married with kids like 10 years down the line? Yeah, yeah. That, that was uh, something... I wasn't desperate for it, but I was... Uh, I was ready for that. Huh. It's um, it's interesting, eh? and and it's it's so weird how life has got all these little turns, and it's you know it's so you know you could never sort of predict, even before that tour, you know you would have never predicted ten years later you were going to be married <laughs> with kids living in the north of Madagascar. You know, it's like if you would have tried to come up with a hundred different scenarios that, that might happen ten years later, that probably wouldn't have been among them. Nope. Exactly. <laughs> in some sense, trying to plan for the future is kind of a madness when it comes to some of these details because it's it, yeah, it's, something's going to play out and you have no idea. Although the, you know the the general idea is, mm. I'm, I'm very happy with it the way it's played out. And I you know I think if you, to answer the second part of your question, if you had told me the way things would happen, I would be very happy to hear that. Like yeah, that's that sounds about right. That sounds good. This is something Keith and I were talking about earlier in the pandemic is you know when we look back on the past 15 years do we have regrets of like oh man i you know wasted so much time or and both of us answered the question is no zero regrets if i can if <laughs> you know the pandemic just rages for the next 40 years and we never travel again yeah. anywhere I, I have no regrets about like misspent time or misspent life that was actually my next question, Ken. Oh, okay, <laughs> fire away. <laughs> yeah, so I was. Yeah, I wanted to ask you if you did have any regrets, but I mean, let, let's not say regrets, but let's just say, just sort of, uh, say you're sort of day, daydreaming and you just sort of, like, what ifs? You know, what if I hadn't met this lady, and you know, wh where would I have been, or what if I didn't? start working with tropical birding you know where would i have been do you are, are you kind of do you think about that are you curious of how your life might have taken a different turn yeah definitely i'm a pretty analytical type of person who tends to think about these things maybe more than is healthy at points but uh <laughs> yeah i you know i sometimes a, a micro regret is i actually wish i'd done even more traveling when i was a single and didn't have a family and a, during right. that time, I would say I almost undervalued my freedom, which people might yeah. say is crazy considering how much travel I actually did do. But, you know, I wish I'd actually done <laughs> even more. So I would say, man, just take full advantage of your freedom. If you're in your 20s, yeah, just, just make yeah. it happen. Just save your money like a miser and go travel. Travel cheaply, see the world. It's a pretty precious decade from when you're sort of 20 to 30 and make the most of it. I sometimes wish, you know, I sometimes wonder what if I'd followed another course and sort of ended up as a university professor or something. Like I, I studied history and philosophy and I'm interested in those things. And sometimes the sort of the academic life quite appeals to me, but I really don't uh, regret, you know, that although you can travel in the summer as a professor, I would have done way less travel. I would have probably been in the States for the last 15, 20 years and but I do think about that occasionally. 
And it's the sort of thing where if you haven't sort of laid the groundwork in your, say, 20s and early 30s, it's hard to become a professor later in life. So about yeah, regrets. I, I'm, this is a this is a this is one of my favorite questions that I get thought of. So you've had a lot of experiences. You've lot of been to a lot of very cool places. You're very aware of also where I've been. You've been to some places that I'm quite envious of. Mentioned last time, you know, uh, whole, vice uh, versa. Yeah. So I, I just wondered which of my experiences that I've had or places that I've been are you envious of. I'm yeah. I'm actually a little envious of your the sort of mega road trip you did in Latin America. Um, I I approach yeah. Latin America very differently. I sort of did country by country, and I spent huge amounts of time in just a couple countries, and so that was great. But it, you know, I sometimes wish I'd gotten to more countries, covered more ground, and done something a bit more like you did. So. Yeah, this, that's going to lead on to another question, but uh, let's see. Yeah, first I'm going to ask you, I know, I think you've mentioned before on the podcast that you're maybe considering moving to the U.S. with your family at a point. Is that uh, is that still yeah, that's a, right. a thought? <laughs> and so my question is, what do you think they're going to make of the U.S.? And what do you think the U.S. is going to make of them? I think they're likely to appreciate the States more than I do. I, I think in general, people are most critical of their own country and they tend to see the worst sides of it. And I think they'll probably appreciate it more than I do, which, which might be good. You know, I might be able to sort of see it through their eyes. That's the big thing I want for my kids is basically to be able to see, let's say third world countries or less developed countries like Madagascar to see sort of developed, organized countries like the States and then just decide where they want to be. What, you know, what, what do they like? What, what the mix? Yeah. yeah. Not just to be stuck in one world or the other. I have no idea how they're going to fit in in the States. I, I th in general, I think the States is far more accepting of people just regardless of what they look like than just about anywhere in the world. You know, I think they'll pretty quickly be accepted as Americans if they want to be. Well, although I do certainly wonder with all the the problems in the states these days and all the tension whether that's changed. And I think it might be a, a local thing as well. You know, there might be places that are potentially more dangerous or hostile, and others that are far more accepting of uh, sort of foreign mixed family. I, I think it, it's probably going to come a lot down to where you choose to go, because I mean it's such a it's such a mixed bag. The states, isn't it? It can be incredibly liberal, it can be incredibly conservative, it can be it can be hostile, it can be welcoming. I think it's just it's just it, it has everything. So I guess you yep. just got to choose a choose very carefully a place that you want to be. It's kind of intimidating because it, it's like a whole world unto itself. And, you know, part of what's, yeah. what I like about life in Madagascar is it's actually relatively simple. Like, there's not that many places you can actually realistically live. There's not that many choices in general for just what you want to buy or where you want to live. States is just absolutely unlimited. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you can drive 15 minutes and go to another little town, and it might have a totally different character than the, the, the town you just left. And that's even on a micro scale, you know, Maine versus New Mexico is pretty crazy difference. So a sort of follow-on question from that is if if you do leave or when you do leave, what things are you going to miss about Madagascar? And also what things are you not going to miss? <laughs> <laughs> I think a bit like you when you left South Africa, you were happy to be in a place that was just a bit more efficient, where government was better organized, where it was clearer, like what you needed to do to get X piece of paper or or register for this program or whatever. That stuff is just clear as mud in Madagascar, and it just eats a huge amount of time. I think, well, the, the cost of living in Madagascar is remarkably cheap for people who have... Uh, a somewhat Western salary, and I'll certainly miss that. Um, I'll miss the fact that just about everything you can buy is going to be pretty healthy and fresh, mostly organic. You know, all the beef here is free-range, grass-fed. You're not just constantly agonizing over, like, what food is healthy or healthy enough versus its cost. Like, the States is just endless choice, which really produces some angst about, oh man, am I choosing well? Am I poisoning my kids by giving them this, you know, grapefruit from Walmart? That kind of thing. <laughs> um, I, I will miss just the mega biodiversity of Madagascar and the mega endemism. Yeah. Just the fact that like every little mountain and forest has some localized things that I've never seen before. You know, they, there's two mountains I can see from my house now and they both have amazing herps that I've never still haven't seen and you know just being in the states it's probably got, it's probably got stuff that hasn't even been described at there. absolutely yep states is just way less biodiverse it's also just so much better known you know when I look at like Zenocanto the states is just or eBird you know it's just plastered with records so it's just far I think it's far harder to contribute anything novel to whatever an observation or a recording or a photograph. I, maybe that's why people off tend to go on a smaller scale. Like, well, I'm just going to be a, you know, Cameron County or whatever, birder or herper rather than, there's, you know, Madagascar, there's just so much to discover everywhere. Yeah. But it's, it, it's also kind of more convenient to see stuff. You know I mean? If you, if you want to go and find something, you've got all this, you've got these amazing resources, you know, you mentioned eBird, but I mean, even field guides and apps and, and whatever you've got everything at your fingertips that you need to go and you know show your kids different parts of nature and 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 the parks there you know i was i was really blown away by some of the wildlife refuges and stuff you go there and and it's just wonderful places they're wonderfully set up with great facilities and stuff so that is nice yep that's something i'm very much looking forward to is is just more natural areas that are easily and cheaply accessible Madagascar is a weird place, as you know, because you have some great national parks, but the entrance fees are expensive. You have to go with a local guide, which they often add a lot and are wonderful people. But, you know, that's another expense that's actually pretty considerable. So, you know, you end up sort of paying $40 just to go for a walk in the woods. Just having having parks and stuff that are free and you just wander around national forests. That's something I, I look forward to a lot 
So my next question is, so I guess you, you obviously still have uh, thoughts of travel in the future. You also have parental responsibilities, family responsibilities. And I wonder how, whether you have a sort of plan about how you're going to, how you, are you going to balance those, those, you know, these, these desires to travel with your parental responsibilities? No, I, I plan to spend less time traveling in the future, at least temporarily, right. you know, just investing in the kids more. I think I'll have lots of time to travel later in life. And, and uh, I've done so much travel now. If I have to sort of restrict my travel for 10 years or something, that's fine. And, you know, as as you're finding, I think, with Felix, there's a different kind of joy to traveling with your kids and sort of watching them discover things, even if it's not like a lifer for you, that could probably yeah. be more meaningful than like me going by myself to Sulawesi and seeing a hundred new birds. But that, but that would be nice as well though, right? It would, right. I'm, it's, it doesn't <laughs> sound, doesn't sound terrible. <laughs> so, but I mean, do you, do you have any plans to really get your kids hooked on wildlife so you can go traveling with them or take them to the places that you're interested in going or anything like that? Or are you just going to play it by ear, see how, see what they become interested in? Our kids are already pretty interested in nature, um, pretty, pretty open to it, at least, you know, not some kids oh. just kind of are taught by their parents to be just closed off and not interested in these things. So my kids definitely pay attention to birds and that sort of thing. I haven't really had a deliberate strategy of like making them into birders or, or anything like that, but I think they're, right. they're interested enough in everything that that's definitely going to be a easy to, to accomplish or like, or it's, it's an avenue that's open to them if they continue to be interested in, right. in nature, let's yeah. say, you know, we did a trip to but, South Africa last uh -huh. year yes, and, and everybody loved it. Yeah, I think everybody has some kind of natural bias towards liking mammals. And so that's right. And that's fine. But everybody was into it. I mean, we spent sort of 10 hour days driving around in Kruger and it was absolutely roasting. It was like 45 degrees or something. It was like 115 Fahrenheit. It's, it's and, uh, yeah. you know, people were still loving it. <laughs> so, so there's no sort of uh, little little plans in the back of your head uh, you know when when we we and Allah gets to 18 to go off around South America for a year with him or anything like that you've got no you, get, you there's no sort of concrete plans no concrete plans uh, it could be could be wonderful I also just think you have very little control over what kids are going to be interested in and I don't want to yeah. have too many expectations for that right okay moving on this is a question about future travel. I just wondered which... I know you said, oh, you know, if you could only go to one place, you know, you're, you're about to die, whatever. But, I mean, if you could just say you had, you know, three trips that you, that you had the chance to do in the future, you know, what are some of the places that you, you most want to go to? Antarctica is probably number one for me. Oh, um, really? Yeah. Wow. This, the southern cone, um, Chile, Argentina, is, uh -huh. is up there. And Australia is probably the third. 
Right. There's certainly hundreds of other places, as you as you know, but yeah, if I was to, oh, yeah. it was like, yeah, you can do three more trips. I think that's what I would pick. It was interesting. We we did this. My wife and and Felix and myself. We we all did this. We all had we all wrote down in secret there uh, our top three destinations where we wanted to go. And I think I think all of us wrote down. Or th- those two both wrote down Madagascar and Australia. So they were they were two. I can't remember where else it was, but uh, yeah, but, um, Australia was also up there for me. New Zealand. Um, you know, I have yeah, a lot of cool. different uh-huh. interests. And some of my some of the places I really want to go are really not like birding places. You know, I'm fascinated by right. the, the sort of the Siberia and far eastern okay. Russia, and not super biodiverse, but just interesting. Greece is a place that I really need to go. I want to spend more time in Turkey. You know, there's like virtually no new birds I can see in those places, but just culturally yeah. and historically, I. And actually, Europe in general is a place that I really want to spend more time. I love Europe, and that's one of the first places really? I started traveling. And I, I, yeah, I find it really fascinating. Pretty poor as a sort of birding or wildlife place overall, but I love Europe. Yeah, that would be pretty low on my list of places to go. <laughs> Having grown up there, it really holds very little. Uh, apart from Spain, I, there's there's oh, some birds Spain. in Spain, and I quite I quite yeah, I haven't I haven't really done Spain properly. I've been to Barcelona a couple of times, and I've been to Mallorca, but yeah, I really would love to to spend some more time there. One of the things I'm most keen to do, probably if I had, this might even make the top three. I don't know. I'd have to think about it, but just to do like a big Eastern Europe road trip and just experience all those okay. different little like microcultures and so it's ancient cities like Prague and I think that'd be amazing and and there's some pretty great wildlife too and here and there in Eastern Europe I think that'd be an amazing trip I'm surprised recently I, I remember you were I think maybe when I was discussing some some Peruvian birds or Peruvian experiences you were like oh I really want to go to Peru I, I, I really thought that would be up there for you it, it, it's up there yeah it's probably in the top uh, certainly in the top 10 so yeah, another question would be: Is if you were gonna go somewhere like Peru, or you know, do like a pure, not like a overall trip, you know, of culture and everything. If you were just doing a very um, nature-focused or birding-focused trip somewhere like Peru, there, there was gonna have a whole bunch of new birds, new things to see, and you were only allowed to bring binoculars or your camera, but not both. What would you take? <laughs> Easy choice. <laughs> Easy choice. <laughs> Binoculars. Yeah. Really? I've actually deliberately traveled that way quite a few times in recent years. I know. I remember. Um, the first yeah. time I went to Sundaland down in uh, National Park, National Park, Tamanagara National Park in uh, Peninsular Malaysia, <laughs> I, I just deliberately left my camera and just birded. Right. Same thing. You know, when I went down to the Transfly in southern uh, New Guinea, um, what yeah. was that two years ago? I, I just left my camera. I just birded because I had so many new things to see. Bird photography is yeah. tough, and I didn't regret it for a second. Uh, when I went to see Snow Leopard, I I didn't even bring a camera. Yeah, this is a whole other topic, but you know, I, yeah. in some ways, I quite dislike the way the camera has changed me as a as a birder and as a an observer of of wildlife it, and nature. I, I've noticed it can be it can have quite a, a negative 
impact on a trip say say a birder you know you know even if they're mainly a birder and you know birder first bird photographer second and they and you show them one of the most amazing birds in the world and they try and take a picture of it and then it flies away or they don't get a picture they're unhappy yep and then like you know i just showed you one of the most amazing things in the world and you're unhappy it, it kind of it, it take it kind of steer, it kind of robs that that awe and that happiness from you because your your focus is just or maybe you know you see something very briefly and you try and photograph it and it flies away and you never see it again and you didn't really have a good look at it you know it's um i sometimes say that photography is a way to always be unhappy about something it doesn't it almost doesn't <laughs> exactly. matter how well you've seen something or what you've seen there there's yeah. some micro complaint about oh the angle of the light or oh the harsh midday light or the oh i didn't get it with the bill open yeah. or yeah it's a funny Enjoy thing I, I do love photography and it does sometimes i feel like it really enhances my my time outdoors let's say during this pandemic just doing photography in madagascar has i've really enjoyed it and it's kind of given me missions and reasons to want to go out right but sometimes yeah. it definitely uh can sort of backfire or or detract from your enjoyment yeah i'm i'm often i'm often sort of conscious of that when i'm lo- looking at some new something new some new birds or whatever that it, and you're wondering you know whether to look at it first or whether to take a picture first but You've, you've got to kind of remind even when you do have your camera you've got to remind yourself just make sure you look at it first get, get a good look because you know sometimes that that image is sort of you know imprinted in the back of your back of your brain you know that that stays with you um more than some little blurry picture you know of something <laughs> exactly. you didn't look at properly yeah <laughs> sometimes i force myself like i the last trip i did before the pandemic was in vietnam and you spend a lot of time in the hides and you see these awesome birds like pittas yeah. and, and i i just forced myself okay i'm gonna take photos for one minute and then i'm gonna put down the camera pick up my bins and just watch this bird and just feel watch the them. the pleasure of seeing this beautiful shy bird just directly without the intermediary of the camera but it takes some sort of mindfulness and discipline to do that because you kind of your default thing is just just machine gun away until the bird leaves, and then you're like, "Oh wait, yeah. I didn't even look at it." <laughs> yeah. No, very cool. Anyway, uh, last question, um, and this is also one I, I stole from you, which was basically, "What's your end game? Where where do you want to end up? Where do you want? What kind of life do you want to? What do you want to have? Do you have a plan or not really?" Well, birding has sort of never been um, an aim unto itself to me. It, it's always been something that's instrumental to traveling. It, it's funny because I've always felt like being a birder and seeking out birds made me a better traveler, like a traveler who went more places and saw more things and didn't just see the things that every other traveler saw. And... I guess I, I wanted to be a traveler before I wanted to be a birder. And I yeah. I think even yeah. if I wasn't a birder, I'd be a traveler. And so the yeah. the birding it provides this sometimes kind of funny game, but it that gives structure to like where do I want to go? Like I'm I'm showing up in Egypt. Where do I want to go? But my my main goal really is to learn about the world and via travel. 
and I guess it might sound funny, but to essentially be a, a wiser person or someone who has a deeper perspective <laughs> on the world and on life. And uh, I find, you know, when I'm discussing any, any kind of like political, social, economic issue with someone, having like a deep conversation about something, my views are very much informed by what I've seen in traveling the world as much as by things I've read about in books. And I find that people who are really smart and have read a lot, they tend to have certain kinds of opinions, but then people who've actually seen the world and the way it really works have a different and sometimes deeper perspective on things. And so I guess getting that perspective is, is my, that's my main goal in, in terms of traveling and birding. Reaching a, enlightenment and and, and nirvana yeah that's, uh, that's uh, a fairly, fairly modest goal there not sure about that but just maybe maybe being us <laughs> working towards being a slightly better version of myself or 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 just having some kind of perspective that's worth sharing with other people maybe that's just my kids yeah i sometimes wonder would you would you say how how you see the world has changed like in the last 10 years or whatever you see it with different eyes now from when you were younger um, certainly in some respect, although I don't know if I could put my finger on, you know, I would say the biggest shift in the way I viewed the world was when I started traveling in, in less developed countries. When I left the States and I just started seeing places that weren't the States. To me, that was just like eye opening and it just completely changed the way I, yeah. I looked at the world. And so that was a little bit, that was more than 10 years ago, but you know, it comes back to the same idea of like, it, it wasn't seeing, uh, some chlorophonia in Mexico that like <laughs> opened my eyes and like changed my view of the world. Yeah. It was just seeing Mexico. And so the chlorophonia yeah. was like the, the sub, you know, game or the sub goal, but the real goal was like just getting out of the States, getting out of my, my comfort zone and seeing another country. And it, it just profoundly shook me and changed the way I looked at the world. And, and I've had that kind of experience a few times. I mean, the first time I went to India, it just really like yeah. shook up my view of the entire world. It just was an absolutely profound experience. And again, it wasn't because I saw an Ibis bill, like the Ibis bill was no. really cool. <laughs> and that's an amazing bird. So that, I guess that's what I mean by the, the, the broader goal. You, you know what shocked me when I went to India was I was expecting everybody to be miserable there. I thought, I'm, I'm going to get there. There's going to be dirt poverty. Everybody's going to be miserable. And I, and I got there and people were, everybody just laughing and smiling and kids playing. <laughs> yep. And that, that just like, it just shook me. I was like, how can it be? And then I went back to the UK and, and, I remember sitting on the on the underground on the on the subway from Heathrow Airport going back into the city and I just looked around and everybody just looked miserable. They're all, you know, on their smart clothes and, you know, privileged lifestyles and everybody just looked miserable and all I could remember was those those kids playing in the street with nothing and being happy and it and it, it just shook me and that that was just a revelation to me that you know you don't need you don't need money to be happy and often it, it's the other way around 
Exactly. You, you want to see misery flying to JFK Airport in, in mid-January. Like, wow. <laughs> the true face of suffering. I remember one of the yeah. first times I was in, in India, you know, they often have these like one-room schools in rural areas. And, and I guess it was a class or maybe it was the whole school had just gone out into the shade of a tree. And the teacher would like set up a chalkboard and all the kids were like cross-legged on the ground and he was just teaching the class to them. And just seeing that, it's like, whoa, this is a whole nother way of living. And yeah. uh, it, it, somehow it seems so much healthier than living in a school that is like a prison, you know, because we're so terrified that someone's going to come shoot the kids or they're going to shoot each other. You know, I don't have any easy answers. There's There's certainly things missing in India that would benefit those kids too. But just yeah. seeing another way of living, it it makes you more open to, to different things and different ideas. And yeah, the world's complicated. So, um, yeah, thanks for answering my questions. Um, I hope our listeners have learned something about us new in these, uh, in these last couple of episodes. It's certainly been very sort of uh thought-provoking we've we've uh, covered some interesting stuff yeah it's been uh been fun uh maybe we we could do it again if we if we keep this podcast going for another year or something maybe we can revisit this topic people could write in as well it would be interesting like the question that one of our patreons had for you about you know do you list uh things other than birds <laughs> yeah if if there's anybody you know if any any of our listeners or, or patrons have got any things they want to know about us if you've got any questions you want to ask yourself yeah we'd uh, we'd certainly be more than happy to read those out online so ken what are we gonna what are we gonna use as our natural sound this week is there any uh are there any memorable sounds from the things that we've discussed that you want to that you want to play let's do a bard antshrike um, from it's a, well, it's a bird that's all over the neotropics, right? But it gets up into Mexico. In some of my early travels in Mexico, that really opened my eyes to all sorts of things. That's was certainly a bird I was seeing and hearing, and it's got quite a quite a cool song. So fantastic! Yeah, we played uh, yeah. play bard and shrike from Zenocanto. Okay, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you all next time.